Hey, writers, join our first draft weekly writers club. We meet every Tuesday from 12 to 1 Eastern time. For more information, go to writingclassradio.com and click on the classes tab. Hey, guys, this is Writing Class Radio. Thanks for tuning in. On this podcast, you'll hear true personal stories from the students in our class and a little bit about how to write your own stories. I'm Allison Langer, a student in the class. I'm Andrea Askowitz, the teacher of the class. Together, we produce this podcast, which is equal parts heart and art. By heart, I mean getting to the truth. And by art, I mean the craft of writing. On today's episode, we're talking about mimicking the masters. You know, like if you were a painting student in Paris and then you went to the Louvre and you sat in front of a Leonardo da Vinci, like you would practice painting like him. That's what we're doing in today's episode. Because I think it's worth copying methods that work because we know they work. So it's a good idea. It's like learning the rules before you break the rules. You mean like in our class, like when we study published works and stuff like that, it gives us an idea of what worked and what didn't work. And, you know, maybe we can write a little bit more like that if we're tired of getting rejected. (laughs) (laughs) And you, listening audience, can study the stories we study on our website. I don't know if I told you this, but in one of the very first writing classes that I took as a student, we were given the assignment to choose an author and read a novel and then to write in the style of that author. And I chose The Bell Jar by Sylvia Plath. Why? Because I was trying to learn how to write light and hilarious. And have you learned? I actually did learn how to write funny by mimicking the style of Sylvia Plath, even though her book is like it's... It's autobiographical, and she is famous for putting her head in an oven. But her her style is really light. And I learned that you can write something really serious and hard using sentences that are not complicated and that are light and funny. It was a great lesson. Last year, I took a class at the Miami Writers Institute with Brian Turner. Brian read a passage from his memoir, My Life is a Foreign Country, where he mimicked one of his favorite writers, Rick Moody. Okay, so before we start today, I'm passing out a reading. In our class, I read the excerpt Brian Turner wrote. We're going to talk about this little piece. The soldiers enter the house. Soldiers, determined and bored and searing with adrenaline, enter the house with shouting and curses and muzzle flash, debt cord, and 5.56 millimeter ball ammunition. The soldiers enter the house with pixelated camouflage, flex cuffs, chem lights, door markings, duct tape. The soldiers enter the house with ghillie suits and Remington sniper rifles, Phoenix beacons, and night vision goggles, lasers invisible to the naked eye, rotor blades, hellfire missiles, bandoliers strapped across their chest. The soldiers enter the house one fire team after another and they fight brutal, dirty, nasty, the only way to fight. The soldiers enter the house with the flag of the nation sewn onto the sleeves of their uniforms. They enter the house with Toledo and Baton Rouge imprinted on the rubber soles of their desert combat boots. They enter the house and shout, honey, I'm home, and here's Johnny. The soldiers enter the house with conversations of Monday night football and the bouncing tits of the Dallas Cowboys cheering. After hearing this in class, students wrote their own stories. Okay, so here's what we're going to do right now. Think about a group that you belong to that you specifically know very, very well. And um, tell us what those people bring to that situation. 
First up is Nilsa Rivera, who you may know from episode 29. She told the story about being hard of hearing. Here's Nilsa imitating the style of Brian Turner. The drug dealers enter the kitchen. Drug dealers, two of them, with drugs and money, both friends and childhood, with hopes and dreams. The drug dealers enter the kitchen with cocaine, baking soda, water, and clear baggies. The drug dealers enter the kitchen after their grades failed in middle school, after her teacher said she wasn't going to make it with the books, after his coach said basketball was out of the question, after her mother said Getting money from men was easier than school, after she saw the man inside the car handing money to her mother. The drug dealer entered the kitchen when a knee injury crashed his dream of a basketball career, after her lights were shut off, after the three-day eviction notice was hung on the door, but the easier option was too gross. After his mother said that at 14 everyone has to work somehow, and that he was the man of the house. The drug dealers enter the kitchen after his friend showed him the way, and he showed her. The drug dealers enter the kitchen with rusted pots pulled from the cabinet with the broken door and loose hinges. She pushes the dishes and the coffee pot, pours the water to boil the cocaine-sprinkled baking soda. The drug dealers enter the kitchen like two kids, still laughing at the awkwardness of cooking dope. The kitchen is where the white clumps of crack harden their skins and hearts. The drug dealers enter the kitchen where their mother cooked their yellow rice and chicken to disguise the smell of burning toxic plastic, to disguise the smell of the crack that will buy the dinner and pay the rent. The drug dealers enter the kitchen to fill the baggies with clumps of crack cut into square like white brownies. The drug dealers enter the kitchen to count the $5, $10 that add up to hundreds and thousands of dollars to hide the money in the cabinet, the pantry, the unused oven, the coffee cans, and the cereal boxes. The drug dealers enter the kitchen to pick up growing bags of individually packed candy that kill souls and ravish families, to sell them to her mom, to her mom's friend, to the coach's sister, to the priest's daughter, to the police officer's brother. The drug dealers enter the kitchen after making the money to pay the rent, the light, the cable, the clothes, the notebook for the younger sister who still has a chance to go to school but never takes it. The drug dealers enter the kitchen for the mother who needs HIV medicine, for the sister who needs baby formula, for the nephew who needs football gear, the aunt who needs a car, the cousin who needs a ride, the son who needs diapers. They enter the kitchen because drug dealers never get a chance to make more money than they make selling drugs. $10 an hour is not enough. Fucking hell, she nailed it. I am totally in the kitchen with the drug dealers with all the specific details that happened in that kitchen, including the backstories of the characters. This exercise enabled the narrator to take us into the scene. Love this exercise. Next up, 
is new student Leah Messing. Millennials enter the house sweaty and drunk at 3 a.m. on a Friday morning after kickball happy hour at the local Irish pub, prepared to sleep for three hours and go to work the next day. They feel satisfied that they made the effort to make new friends. Millennials enter their bedrooms quietly, trying not to wake their roommates, rushing to charge their phones so they can remember to Venmo their landlords for rent due the next day. Millennials enter the house after a 12-hour day at work, searching the internet for new job opportunities but not knowing where to begin because they don't actually know what they want to do. Millennials enter the house after a networking happy hour, exhausted from talking about themselves and trying to collect business cards and make contacts that could lead to future opportunities. Millennials enter the house smelling of lavender incense after taking a yoga class, followed by shopping for groceries at Whole Foods, feeling hopeless about how much it costs to live a healthy lifestyle. Millennials enter the house opening their laptops to search the internet for new job opportunities. They don't know where to begin because they don't actually know what they want to do or what they are passionate about. Millennials enter the house disenchanted, dreaming about the day when their jobs will have more meaning. Millennials enter the house and scroll through their Facebook news feeds, comparing their lives to everyone else's and feeling depressed about their own lives as a result. Millennials enter the house after a friend's housewarming party, their breath smelling of wine. They wonder when they will be able to buy their own place and if they are behind where they should be financially. Millennials enter the house while swiping through Tinder on their phones. They aren't even watching their step. They enter the house after having a good time on a Tinder date, but want to keep swiping and see who else is out there. Millennials enter the house after their fifth consecutive bad Tinder date, wondering how they are ever going to meet someone worthy of a relationship. Millennials enter the house on a Friday night, nostalgic about when they used to go out in college. They answer the front door to receive their Uber Eats delivery, prepared to spend the rest of the night watching Game of Thrones while eating some good takeout. Other millennials enter the house, hoping not to wake up their parents after getting home at 4 a.m. on a Saturday morning, their breath smelling of whiskey and late-night pizza. They wonder when they will be able to afford their own places and not face parental judgment for coming home so late. Millennials enter the house thinking of the Instagram filter and hashtag that best captures their night out. Millennials enter the house, former college students who used to go out five nights a week and wondering why they feel physically unable to get off the couch on a Friday afternoon at 6 p.m. She nailed it too. This She used the third person, but it's so specific. We find out what millennials go through and exactly what Leah Messing goes through. Yeah. I mean, it's really funny. The Facebook thing, the Tinder thing, the Uber Eats, Game of Thrones. I mean, like, does your mom even have any idea what any of that is? No idea. (laughs) My dad. Poor guy. I mean, he can't even use his credit card online. He doesn't know. And so it's a totally different world. And she brings us into that world so well. And also, like you say, is so specific about who she is in that world that we love her. She takes us into a world that anyone older than her doesn't know, but she took us in. She took me in in a way that made me compassionate toward millennials. I always thought millennials were total brats. And now I'm like, oh, they have they go through a lot. It's not so easy. I love this exercise. Before I tell you why, here's a word from our sponsor. Now back to the show. 
I loved this exercise so much because it helped me really think about what it feels like for me to be a writing student, which I spend so much of my time doing, being a writing student and being in writing classes. I did learn how attention-seeking I am, which I've learned over and over again, but I learned it again in writing this story. The memoir writing students walked into the classroom. They were bummed when they saw the sterility of the room, the white walls and the fluorescent lights and tubes on the ceiling that actually hum. The students were like, this is where the magic happens? They were aware of that tired cliche. The students walked into the classroom with laptops or just the right composition notebook, like the ones they used in third grade when they first learned cursive. And they came in with the perfect pens, which are Papermate 1.0M with blue ink or maybe a whole set of felt-tip markers for colorful doodles in the margins, which help keep them awake. (laughs) Students walked in with walkers because otherwise that little metal ridge on the floor in the door jam less than a half inch high could lead to a broken wrist. Students walk in with their migraine medicine already digested. Those meds take away the ability to conjure up words, a cruel joke that is not lost on the writing students. The students walk in with two lives taken, seven to go. They walk in with dead parents and spouses and even children. They walk in with hearing aids and glasses, of course, some for reading because even though they never needed glasses before, they're way past 42, the year their eyes went out of focus. They come in with moms who fuck them up big time, not by being perfect, listening with Dumbo ear, supporting lofty dreams like when the students said, when I grow up, maybe I'll become a brain surgeon or a Supreme Court justice. And the mom said, anything, you can do anything and then later said anything, you can do anything except love a woman. The students walk in with big dreams about becoming famous and just as big insecurities about sucking as writers. They read voraciously and worry they're never going to be as good as Joyce Carol Oates or Stephen King or how about David Sedaris. They fear their years behind because they misspent their youths playing with the twin boys next door and drawing what a vagina looks like with chalk on the sidewalk instead of reading and learning about everything especially the rhythm of language and stories, because everyone knows the best way to become a good writer is to read. They walk in hoping to be the one their teacher notices, the one he'll remember, because these are memoir writing students, and they all want attention, pathologically so. They want to be heard and known. They walk in wanting to be loved. I get why you love this exercise. I really do. I, 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 maybe I'm just not, I wasn't with it enough to like get it when it was in the class because once you started reading to me, I tuned out. I felt like I was in fourth grade and I missed like two days and now they're reading a story. I've, I don't know what it is. So I, there was no context to it. So I was like, why am I learning about a bunch of soldiers? I, I just, I was annoyed. So then I kind of was just turned off to the exercise in general and I don't like that much structure. I feel like, you know, so for me, I just wanted to be freer. But then once I heard everyone's stories, I was like, ooh, that's good. Well, I think structure, I think following a structure is a really good exercise, even if it never becomes anything other than just an exercise. 
But I Why? see how you t- because for the for these reasons, so that we can learn how the how the masters did it, how they do it well. So if you copy how someone does something, then you you learn it. But then you can branch off from that. I just felt like here's this guy and he writes this way and I don't even really like it. So why am I going to try to mimic him? Never going to write like that. I think it's up there with poetry. Like I don't get poetry. I want more information. And I felt like it was a little bit too hard. Like I had to do too much interpreting. Who's she talking about? Wait, is that the person? Is that the narrator? Are they talking about somebody else in the room? Like I was like, wait, let me set the room up. It didn't have the who, what, when, where. I didn't get grounded. I think right in the beginning, mm-hmm. it was too jarring. And so I, I just didn't know enough. And maybe that's what that style did for me. And that's why it turned me off. I think you don't like mimicking. And I think you didn't like this style. And I get that this style is poetic. And usually I don't like that either because it's very repetitive. And I could tell when I was reading it in class, like I could totally feel you rolling your eyes. I'm like, no, wait, we're getting to a good part in my mind. I'm thinking, and we never got to a good part for you because it was just repetitive, repetitive. But there was like a musicality to it that I liked. Mimicking this master is not for everybody. Yeah, but it was really good for you three because I thought that the stories were really well done. I mean, I have no criticisms about them. So definitely I thought that that was well done. I'm going to totally make us mimic masters every time in class now until you like it. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for listening. Remember, we've started a 20 plus 2 campaign to help keep this podcast going. Give $20 and get two people to subscribe. Our goal is 2,000 new listeners and $20,000 by the end of the year. We can do it with your help. Please, please help us reach our goal. If you have a business or startup, let Andrea help you tell that story. She'll come to your office and teach all of your employees how to better articulate why they do what they do. Because stories sell. And I'm for hire too. Let me help your kids write their college essays. We want your stories on our show. If you're inspired, enter our contest. Send us your best 1,200 words. The prompt is secret pleasure. Deadline is February 14th, 2018. First and second place winners will get a copy of Pep Talks for Writers. And if you didn't hear episode 37... Check out Grant Faulkner from NaNoWriMo, who talks about his new book, Pep Talks for Writers, and help you get motivated to write a novel or a memoir. Writing Class Radio is produced by Virginia Laura, Andrea Askwitz, and me, Allison Langer. Theme music by Ari Herstand. Additional music by Emia and Poddington Bear. Writing Class Radio is sponsored by and recorded at the University of Miami School of Communication. This episode is also sponsored by former student Melanie Merriman, author of Holding the Net. Find her at melaniemerriman.com. That's M-E-L-A-N-I-E-M-E-R-R-I-M-A-N.com. There's more writing class on our website, Twitter, and Facebook. Study the stories we study and listen to our craft talks. There's no better way to understand ourselves and each other than by writing and sharing our story. Everyone has a story. What's yours? Have you ever thought, I'd love to have a podcast just like this one? Well, I can help. My name is Matt Kundle, and everyone at my company, the Sound Off Podcast Network, had a hand in making this show. Whether it was about the sound, the discoverability, or that you're just enjoying the show, we are all about the detail. If you think you have a podcast in you, reach out to me via email, matt at soundoff.network. Or check out the website and become one of the great podcasts we work with at soundoff.network.